Okay, well, we're going to be talking about foundations. We're continuing with foundations up until the end of the summer. And looking at what Jesus has done and how it changes the way that we think and live. And it also changes relationships. And we're in Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 21 up until the end of the chapter in verse 33, um, where Paul addresses the Christian household. So I'm just going to read that to you uh, first. Chapter 5, verses 22. Wives, no, let's start in 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands, ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. And we are members of his body. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and become united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound Mystery, because I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and wife must respect her husband. Wow. This is a tricky passage to modern ears and requires some explanation. There are questions of culture, of tradition, and history. Uh, which makes some of what Paul says hard to handle, although it seems to me, as I've looked at this, there are actually only three words that cause all the confusion. And so I thought it'd be fun to look at them today, just before I go away for the next couple of months. So here they are, first troublesome words, submit, head, love. Submit, head, love. Verse 22, wives submit to your, hus your own husband, Verse 22, the husband is the head of the wife. Verse 25, husbands love your wives. And so I think that if we can understand something about these three words, we can get something of the overall message that Paul wants to communicate even to this very modern audience that we have here today. But just before I get into that, I just want to say a bit about where I'm coming from. But in coming to this passage... Uh, my thinking has changed over the years, especially about what it means for a man to be the head of the woman and all that that entails. I see an additional spiritual responsibility on husbands from the loading of the passage, which is angled, I don't know if you've noticed, mostly towards the husband. Um, although I think there is still a more open discussion even to be had on this. And also I wanted to say that Alison and I have never been convinced by the teaching of some about unilateral 
submission. So the wife has to submit to the husband, and that's a one-way street. So in our marriage vows, we went for mutual submission as unto the Lord, which is what I'm convinced Paul describes here in verse 21, and is also what I think is the actual practice of many Christian couples, whatever they say they believe. And finally, these are all my exclusion clauses, um, I wanted to say that there will be differing views amongst us, or even within our family of churches, about some of what I say. And that's okay. Uh, how these things work out in marriage roles is never as important as in the attitudes that we have to one another. That's the real test. And I think that's the nub of what Paul is going for here. So that's a bit of where I'm coming from. So let's have a look at some of these troublesome words and see if I can make a reasonable job of explaining them to you without confusing you too much. And I know it's hot, but I think you're going to be on the edge of your seats. I can already tell. So let's get into it. Firstly, this word submit. Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husband, not to anybody else's, to your own husband as you do to the Lord. Verse 33, and the wife must respect her husband. And if you look through this passage, you'll see that there are these pairings of verses at different ends of the paragraph that relate to one another. So we've got verse 22 and we've got verse 33. And so despite the Church of England's marriage service, wives are not commanded to obey their husbands. Rather, it's children that must obey their parents and slaves to obey their masters, but not wives. Wives are to submit, or the other word is respect, their husbands. So what does this mean? Well, the first thing to note is that the word submit doesn't appear in the Greek in verse 22 at all. Only in our English version. So the correct reading of the passage connects back to verse 21, which is, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Making the wife merely the first example of what this mutual submission looks like in practice, particularly in the context of Christian marriage. The theologian Philip Payne says that Paul's joining of these two words, submit, meaning to place oneself under, with the reciprocal phrase, one another, is one of the most socially revolutionary, linguistically creative teachings of Paul. I couldn't have said that better. It goes on to say that more time, most times in the New Testament, the word submit means to comply with the authority of another, but by adjoining it to one another... He makes this subversion reciprocal, thus shifting its meaning from accepting someone's authority to placing oneself in the service of another. That's beautiful, isn't it? And this fits perfectly with what Paul has already said to the Ephesians Christians, who are in, verse, in chapter 4.25, to bear with one another in love to be kind and compassionate to one another and to forgive one another, that's 432. To, uh, um, uh, yes, and the reason for this submission that Paul gives is, is that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
That's the reason, that's the motivation for submission in the context of the church. So submission is a Christian principle for everyone, including the Christian husband, who is a part of the spirit-filled community of the church, presumably, and who is also called to adopt an attitude of submission to the one another part of the command, which means his own wife. She's part of the one another band of the church. But then Paul goes on. Are you following me? Are you okay? There's going to be a lot to think about. I know so. But then Paul repeats the command to the wife in verse 24. Why does he do that? Verse 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives, just in case you missed it the first time, submit to their own husbands in everything. Verse 24. And everything sounds like a lot, doesn't it? I mean... <laughs> Everything, my goodness me, but Paul is describing an attitude, not a servitude. He's talking about a willingness to be submissive in everything, a, a heart disposition of service and respect, which is only what he requires of the whole church, actually. And this was radical for reasons that we won't know unless we know a bit of history. Because in the Roman household, there was actually no need to tell a woman to submit or to obey her husband. It was expected. She was her husband's property, completely dependent upon him as previously she would have been a, upon her father or in the absence of the father, an older brother or relative, male relative. And if she refused, she could lose everything, never mind <laughs> submit in everything. And so Paul wasn't talking about her role, actually. That was already established. It was actually endemic in her culture, and we see this even today in many Eastern cultures that are still around. But he was talking about an attitude. He was saying, look, I know you have to submit, but I want you to do it willingly. I want you to do it from the heart. I want you to go even further to show respect for your husband so that you honour him, so that you serve him, as the church does to Christ. Remember that example? It's beautiful, isn't it? Now, this subservient role that's in their culture, I would suggest, is not what we would expect of women today and neither is, what, is it what I believe Paul is teaching except that the attitude of going beyond what is required by one's culture still holds up so it goes something like this wives as a godly woman how do you show your husband honour and respect how do you speak to him would you speak to anyone else like that in the church how can you go the extra mile for him? You don't have to, but willingly. How can you lift him up? How can you encourage him in who he is and what he does? You do know, don't you, that men need to be encouraged and respected. Wives, you've got a really important role in that, even today. It's something to do with the way that men are made. They need to know that you respect and honour them. You know, Alison's opinion of me and her encouragement or even her criticism is more significant than anyone else's. 
what she says has got more weight because she's closer to me and she knows me better than anyone else. Wives, do you know the power that you have? Respect your husband and see him growing in the confidence that you long to see in him. Respect him and he'll grow like that. And that's why we must do it. It's not because husbands are superior in some way, that they're the boss of you. I think we need to disconnect submission from the idea of headship or authority in our thinking. Fear is not the motivation for respect. Not biblically. Love is. As we'll see. But before we come on to that, let's have a look at the next word or concept, the word head. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the body. And then Paul completes the picture that he begins in verse 23 with verse 31. For this reason, and there's a whole lot of stuff in between these two verses. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. And I want to suggest to you today that these two verses are about unity, not authority. And that's hard for us to understand because in English, the word head has got all kinds of connotations with the idea of authority and leadership. This head metaphor is more than just a physical head. We can have a head teacher. We can have the head of social, political, or military organizations. We can, they're the top person in the hierarchy the head, the chief, the one in authority. And also because we know that the brain is in the head, we automatically think of the head as the command center of the body. Well, the Hebrews didn't quite think like that because they thought that the command center of the body was actually the heart. That's where motivation comes from. That's the seat of thought. It's the heart, not the head. And the Greeks, at the, at the same time that Paul's writing, had some really weird ideas about the head, which I'm not going to go into because it's quite disgusting. And there's an awful lot of ink being spilt around the meaning of head and Paul's use of the term, which could take many weeks uh, to unpack. And even then, some of us would remain confused or just plain disagree. But it seems clear from all that I've read I realize I've been looking at this for about six years now, but there you go. But all I've read is that the word used for head in the New Testament can mean leader, if the context allows, but more commonly, it means origin or life source, such as in the head of a river or in Adam being the head or the origin of the human race, Jesus being the head, the originator of the church. So I want to suggest to you a better metaphor for us to understand this without going into all the arguments. And I'm not avoiding anything, but I just think this is going to help. I felt that this is the most useful thing I can do is to share a picture which I can see in what Paul is saying to husbands and wives, which is about the importance of the husband and the wife being joined together in one flesh. 
See, Paul reminds them of the Genesis account in verse 31, not about the hierarchy, but about the joining of two people becoming one. And it's like the body finds its head and in such a unity begins to function together as one person. Just as Christ laid down his life so that we can be united with him in Christ, his body over which he is the head. And of course, Christ, are you, are you with me? You following me? I'm trying to speak slowly. But of course, Christ is the head over everything for the church. There are just two places where that's really clear, that it's got that joint idea of authority uh, and connection. That's in Ephesians chapter 1.22, which is, that's the one place nearby where the words head and everything, over everything, and authority is indicated. But it doesn't seem to be a metaphor that Paul is using when he talks about marriage. Because he's talking about the mysterious joining of a man and a woman. So that Paul commands the husband to love the wife as if she were her, your own body. Verse 33, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. My own body. My own superior male body the same as the weaker female body. This is the shocking idea to a pagan Ephesian man who thought nothing of using any of the other bodies of the women in his household to satisfy his own carnal desires and throw them away as if they were nothing more than a toilet. Paul calls them to unity and monogamy in Christian marriage. That's what I see in this passage. Unity, not hierarchical authority. Stay connected to one another. Don't decapitate the head from the body. Why? It'll die. The marriage will die. Live as one flesh together. Love and care for one another just as Christ and the church. Because the whole thing that's being laid out through Christian marriage that's to be seen by an unbelieving world is about love and sacrifice. Let's talk about the responsibility of the man in the relationship then. It's considerably more onerous than that of the woman. It takes up three quarters of the passage, and, and if you look at some theologians, they point out the reference to husband, father, and master in the next chapter as well is all towards the same man, potentially. So there's an awful lot of commands for this guy to take on board, all right? And, and in, just in this paragraph, three quarters of it is made up... Uh, makes up the passage compared to a couple of lines directed at the woman. So here are the two verses together. Again, there's something in common with these two verses. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 28, 
In this, in this same way, and he's referring back to the sacrifice of Jesus, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Okay, so if wives were being asked to submit to their husbands because he was the boss, then you would expect that this would be the point that Paul addresses the husband and and gives some command about ruling or leading your wife. There is none. There is none in any passage of the New Testament. There you go, your mind is going to go crazy with that thought. Instead, the husband is commanded to love the wife. Love, love, love. All you need is love. At least three times. And it's not just any old word for love. You're probably aware that there are five different Greek words for love, and Paul chooses the hardest one for anyone to live up to. Agape. Sacrificial unconditional selfless love demonstrated by none other than Jesus himself who laid down his life for the church and you will have already gathered from what I have said that the Ephesian husband had few obligations to their wives other than food or shelter they were pretty much free to do as they pleased these men whereas the wives were obliged to do all kinds of domestic work and anything else their husbands required. Some say it's not changed, but there you go. But Paul's words dramatically changed the picture. Rather than being guided by self-interest, the husband is asked to place the well-being of his wife first and to give himself to loving and caring for her. This would have been revolutionary thinking. To make yourself vulnerable as a man to a woman, to be weak before her, to connect emotionally. Can I hardly say the word? But perhaps it's not so revolutionary for us. The idea of loving our wives is obvious. But actually I wonder if it's become too obvious, too easy, this idea. Too familiar, more like rom-com than unconditional. More like friendship or partnership than sacrificial. This command, the command to husbands to love their wives should keep us up at night. To love like Christ loved the church, verse 25, and gave himself up for her. When was the last time we did that? And I said at the beginning that despite the change in my thinking about headship, I thought there was still a greater responsibility on the husbands, that there was something we were called to lead in, and this is it. We are called to lead, if we're called to lead at all, in love. We're called to lead in love, to make sure that our wives know that they are cherished and show our wives that they are loved unselfishly. Agape. Look at it again because he repeats the command again. I said it was three times. 
This one is a 33 verse. However, <laughs> yeah, sure, however. Each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, unselfishly. At least that. Even if we don't have to literally lay down our lives and die for our wives, which I don't think that's what Paul is asking us to do, it is to love like that, unselfishly. And that's hard. I don't, because I don't know about you, I need Jesus to help me because I'm actually really selfish. I know, just me, none of the other guys here. You know, I am, I, I am selfish. I only think about myself and my own needs. I have to really work on that. Alison's just chuckling, but it's a serious thing. Someone once said to me, how can you ever have the time to worry about whether your wife is submitting to you when you have the rest of your life to think about if you're loving her right? You know, if it's your love that will win her respect, nothing else, that's all. There you go, there's your task for the rest of your life. So husbands, do you want your wife to respect you more? Well, make sure she knows how much she's loved by you. And then go even further. Because that's the tone here. It's a bit like the Beatitudes. Even further. Love is the baseline. Even further. It's sacrificial. Make sure that she knows how much she's loved by you and go even further. I have been racking my brains trying to think of how to explain this one. And I've just got a couple of ideas, but I'm sure you might have more. But the first thing I, I think we've learned in our marriage is to learn one another's love languages. You've heard about this? We all have a language, a way of showing that we love people. And we're all made differently. So um, we need to learn one another's lang languages and practice them, even though it probably isn't the same as yours. Wouldn't it be cool if they were the same? Hardly anybody, it seems. But, you know, Alison would say, I feel loved, most loved and appreciated when you load the dishwasher, take out the rubbish and notice when something needs doing and I don't have to ask you. Sometimes it can be really subtle, like the washing basket was left out with no comment and I'm expected to realise that that needs to be put on the line. I've learned this. I've been learning another language. Hold on, let me just get on to me. <laughs> Rob says, I feel most loved when you tell me that you love me. When you encourage me, when you affirm me. I'm going to get emotional now. Uh, in who I am and in what I'm doing. That's how I feel most loved. I tell Alison at least once a day, probably several times, I love you. She says, yeah, right, whatever. <laughs> Just take the rubbish out, will you? <laughs> you haven't done the job I gave you earlier, you know. If you, if you mean it, show me. It's true. She is hard as nails with me. She... <laughs> it's not true. I'm just joking. We have a lot of fun, don't we? Yeah, I'm going to get smacked later. Okay. 
But this is the question. Go further. Do you know your spouse's love language? Do you need some language lessons? It's no good asking me. It's no good me giving you tips. You need to ask your wife or your husband. But particularly, men, you've got an op- you have got a responsibility in this. I believe that. Make yourself vulnerable to her, men. Open up so that you connect emotionally. I know half the time I don't even know what I'm feeling. But take the risk anyway and tell her that you at least have some feelings. Don't be remote. And then ask her and let her talk sacrificially. Make sure that you do all that you can so that as a couple you connect at a deep emotional level. Some of our best times are just sitting and having a chat. What's going on with you? What are you feeling? What are you thinking about at the moment? Those are some of our best times. And if we don't have those times, it affects the relationship. Connect emotionally. Guys, that's what you need to lead in. Make sure that happens in your marriage. Finally, I just want to remind you of where we started, that whatever I have said, if you agree or disagree, if you understand or not, this passage is about respect, not obedience, attitudes, not roles, unity, not authority, but mostly it's about Christ and his church. The central verse of the whole thing makes that clear. And I'm not going to say an awful lot about this for for the sake of time, which is tragic. It's extremely negligent of me because this passage is mostly about Christ and his church. That's the main message, the crucial message that we communicate to one another and to the world around us in Christian marriage is about Christ and the church. And so I just wanted to finish with just showing you all the verses that are about Christ and the church. I've looked at the husband and wife ones, but there's hardly any in comparison. So look at this, verse 23. Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. I'm not called to that. Now as the church submits to Christ, verse 24, there's the example. Verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're not called to do that. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. I'm sure there's some good things I can say to my wife, but I'm not called to that. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or winkle, winkle. (laughs) Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Verse 29, No one hated their own body, but they feed and care for their own body, just as Christ does for church. He's our resource. He feeds us. He cares for us. For we are members of his body. We're connected to him for that. And verse 32, just in case none of us get it, this is a profound mystery. (laughs) But I'm talking about, just in case we didn't understand, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So don't think you've got it all worked out and sewn out sewn up it's a profound mystery even Paul says that 
And wives are called to submit once, maybe twice, if you use the respect word as well, which just confirms the first one. Husbands are called to love their wives three times, but the church, the church is referenced six times and implied many other times when it comes to how what Christ has done is worked out in one of the most significant relationships anyone can have with another person. That's marriage. And I think this is why marriage is under attack. Satan hates marriage because of what it represents. He just wants to confuse it and make it dirty, make it irrelevant. He hates it. Ever wondered why there's such a battle sometimes in your marriage? He hates marriage. Our battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood, although sometimes it feels like it, doesn't it? But it isn't. We have an enemy who's out to destroy our marriages. So pray for your marriage. Pray for one another. Commit again to making it work because marriage is worth the sacrifice. It's worth fighting for as we see with Christ and the church. And so I want to finish with just us just praying for this great institution called marriage a beautiful representation of Christ and the church to the whole world. And I want us to pray for one another in our marriages too. And you say, well, I'm not married yet. Or I was married or whatever it is. I still want you to pray for the marriages because of what it represents, what it stands for, and the spiritual significance of marriage in the world today. So I'm just going to put up some power. They're all already up some PowerPoint prompts and I, I know we're all really hot I can just look around and just we're just trying to get to the end of this but can we just stand and perhaps move around and let's just get into groups of maybe five people and let's just pray foot down these points together let's just pray for the institution of marriage and all that it represents the world pray for the protection and strengthening of Christian marriage generally um, pray for those who are struggling in their marriage relationship. You don't need to ask about that. Just pray for one another and rebuke all spiritual attack on any marriages in the church. Are you up for that, church? Yes. Can you get some energy going just for this, just as a last hurrah? And we'll call it to an end in five minutes or so. Just pray down the list. Bless you. I, I just felt like I just want to take a moment just to honour some of the longevity, longevity of marriages in, in this church and, you know, some of our older people. Um, who's been married for more than 40 years? That's so good. You say 29? 29 and 40. Do you know, I just want to say to the people that have been around a bit, please, will you pray for us? Will you take that responsibility seriously? There are people that aren't here today who are also younger, or some people that are just starting out. It's a heritage. We're talking about legacy. It's something that can be passed on spiritually from fathers to mothers. And it's even proven statistically that parents who stay together are more likely to have children that stay together in their marriages too. It's a legacy, a spiritual legacy. And so I want to ask you humbly, I want to honor you, but I want to ask you humbly, 
Please pray for us, all of us that haven't quite made that heady height yet. Um, and I would like a volunteer from that group, whoever it is, to run to the front now and just pray a blessing over the marriages of the church. Come on, quick, please. Come on, Paul, I can see you ready to run. <laughs> a short distance yeah thank you Lord thank you for marriage thank you for the wonder of your creation your plan that you would use it as a picture of you and the church and Lord we thank you for just how long it can last and Lord thank you that it gets better and better and I just pray now for everyone here all those who are married, all those who would like to be married. Lord, I just pray that you're with them, you encourage them, you bless them. You just bring joy into their married life or into their single life. That, Lord, it's about your joy, your service. And we just speak blessing upon blessing on each couple and each individual here. For the joy set before him, said Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We're blessed because you blessed us. Amen. <laughs>